Good morning. I'm going to start out by reading the psalm that we're going to be working through this morning. This is the word of our Lord. Psalm 8, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When Elder Matt reached out to me a few months ago asking if I'd like to preach, I uh, graciously accepted. I, I'm excited to be here. Uh, Joshua Kirstein, our um, lead preaching elder, is currently on a three-month sabbatical, and right now he's, uh, he's in Sturgis, South Dakota. I think that's right. Um, so he's with his, uh, the motorcycle group, Soldiers for Jesus, and then Elder Matt is getting some much-needed time away with his family. So I'm grateful to help them out and relieve some of that tension and uh, give these guys a break. With that, let's open in some prayer. Father God, we stand here as a collective congregation humbled under your word. I pray that as we work through Psalm 8, our hearts would be open, our minds would be attentive. Father, protect my tongue. Help me to honor you rightly in all that I speak. Father, as we will see this morning, your majesty is glorified in our weakness. And I pray, I pray that this is a much needed reminder for those who call themselves Christians, who may be struggling this morning. So Father, prepare this time for us as we enter into this sweet time in your word. Amen. When Matt asked me what psalm I wanted to preach, I knew immediately that I wanted to preach on Psalm 8. Um, and the reason for that is Psalm 8 represents for me, just where I've been in my study in the last year, it, it represents a, a certain category of theology called Christology. Um, Christology is the study of, of Christ in regard to his person, his nature, his role. It's the study of Christ. Sorry, it's, it's as I read through old dead theologians and, and mainly Puritans, I saw that they were able to find Christ really all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. They were, they were bringing him out of obscure texts that I just thought was amazing. And I really set out this year to pursue that study, to try and understand how they did that. And this psalm was one of those psalms that really leapt out at me in that regard. And so, I'm excited to jump into that. So if you would, if you brought your Bible, if you don't, we have some in the back. Turn to Psalm 8. We're going to work through all nine verses of this psalm. And this morning, we're going to work through five different points. The first point is going to be God's majesty in creation. God's majesty magnified through weakness. God's majesty in the heavens and the stars God's majesty through man and his dominion, God's majesty through Christ and his humility, and then we'll finish with some application. So I'm trying to replicate Steve's five points. 
Let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Even though a good portion of this psalm is about man, it doesn't start with man. It starts with Yahweh. It starts with God's covenant name. You see, in the Hebrew it says, O Yahweh, our Elohim. Both of these Hebrew words are designed to mean God. However, Yahweh is only ever used as God's covenant name that he gives to Israel. I am. Elohim is a more generic term that can be translated as angels or spirits, little g gods, or even God. It's a more generic term. So it's fitting here that that David, the author of this psalm, would start with God, our God. You see, pious Jews would not and still do not speak the name of God in Hebrew. But what's interesting is David, he's not caught up in that tradition. He knows who his God is. He knows he's Yahweh. He's the God of Israel, the God of creation, the God who simply is, that God is present to David. You see, this psalm highlights one of the amazing aspects of of who God is is in his nature. You see, God is here. He's not far away. He's David's Lord. Imagine that. God, all and all who he is, has sought to make David a son. David knows that he has an amazing intimacy with his Lord. There's a closeness, a tender-hearted cry from man to God. And it's this point that David begins to ponder all of God's majesty throughout creation. Notice with me that this psalm starts with God before the creation. When starting the psalm with God and placing the creation second, there's a right ordering of how God created the universe. You see, there's God, and then there is his creation. The creation does not dictate to God. Rather, it's the other way around. The creation is to worship and submit to God. You see, David understands this. He rightly sees this, and he quickly opens with an emphatic declaration of God's majesty. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is drawing our attention immediately to the brightest mirror that man can see that reflects God's majestic glory. And what is that? It's creation. It's the earth. It's the universe. When we stand at the edge of a cliff and overlook God's creation, we're filled with humility. And I I hope that many of you have had that experience. Maybe you're on the edge of the Grand Canyon or you've climbed a huge mountain and you overlook it. You typically don't feel big. No, you feel small. It makes us feel insignificant. God's creation serves to put us in our place. It serves to help us see that there is a creator, and we are not him. In Romans 1.20, Paul writes that mankind's invisible attributes, namely, I'm sorry, not mankind, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so we see the mountains, the seas, the lakes, the fields, the skies, the countless horizons that exist throughout the entire universe, the smallest pebble of sand and microscopic molecule to the largest star and galaxy, 
God is the almighty creator, sustainer, and ruler of everything. Creation rightly testifies of his name and his majesty. And that brings us to our second point. God's majesty magnified in weakness. David continues to show us God's majesty in in unique and peculiar ways throughout this psalm. And he does so in verse 2. Look with me there. Verse 2 says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So what's God's majesty on display here? You see, this single verse, verse 2, I submit to you, is instrumental in understanding this entire psalm. There's a a type of majesty that God utilizes here. His majesty is displayed through babies and infants. That's weird, right? How is that the key to this psalm? How is God's majesty displayed in a baby or an infant? And how does he use it to bring about destruction for his enemies? It's an odd concept, but it's an important one. Turn to the New Testament in math, the book of Matthew. We're going to look at Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. And the blind and lame came to him in the temple. The him here is Jesus. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus is quoting our very psalm. He's quoting Psalm 8-2. Now, notice that Jesus is not strictly applying infants and nursing babies to mean literally infants and nursing babies. Rather, we see here that Jesus is applying Psalm 8-2 to a manner of all children crying out in the temple. The context here helps us see that there is a category of infancy that Christ is trying to highlight by subtly rebuking the chief priests and the scribes. What is that category? One of the commentators that I read says this, God had put glory and praise expressed with a strong voice into their mouths. That's referring to the babies and little children in the Matthew passage. Jesus did this to show his enemies that God's strength was made perfect in their weakness and his praise the more glorious. So these children, they say, Hosanna to the son of David, because they see that Jesus had healed some people. And it enrages the scribes and Pharisees. And so here we start to see that God is working through these children in order to bring about some sort of folly to his enemies. But this isn't the only place where we see Jesus speaking of children this way. Skip back about 10 chapters and look at Matthew 11, 21 through 25. Woe to you, Chorazin, Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, It would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What does Jesus say next? At that time, Jesus declared, 
I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. How do you transition from such a harsh rebuke to praising God for revealing true saving knowledge to little children? You see, the answer to that question is at the heart of our faith. Jesus thanks God that he has hidden his truth from the wise and understanding. Who are the wise and understanding here? Well, it's God's enemies. It's Chorazin, it's Bethsaida, it's Capernaum. You see, these cities are representative of God's enemies as they had not heeded, they had not seen Christ in his miracles for who he truly was. They were enemies of the one true God, unlike the little children that Jesus refers to. Let's look at Psalm 8, 2 again. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. God has put his enemies to open shame from the mouth of babies. You see, the idea here is this. God brings his full sovereign might against his enemies by raising up those who are not the proud, wise, and strong. You see, God works in foolish ones who have not knowledge others have, who lack wisdom and prudence, as well as those who are babes, helpless, defenseless, and impotent. God reveals his covenant of grace to these foolish and insignificant ones. He brings his gospel to those who are in need of a physician, not to those who are healthy. Of these benefactors of God's lavish grace, again, John Gill says, the veil of darkness and ignorance is removed from them and spiritual sight is given to them. God establishes his strength by defeating the enemy. But how he defeats his enemy is the real mystery that this is hitting on. He does so through the mouths of infants, through those who are weak, those who are insignificant. It's really no surprise that the weakest protagonists in Scripture are those who are tools by which God uses for massive transformation and gospel renewal. Peter, the apostle Peter, was a loud mouth. He was brash. He should have shut up way more than he spoke. Moses was a stutter. Paul was a murderer. David was an adulterer and murderer. It goes on and on. Those of you who know your Bible know that. God works through righteously deficient, sinfully weak, and broken men so that his majesty would shine brighter than if he had not done so. That's really the center point of this entire sermon. But we'll get back to that. Let's look at the next section, God's majesty in the heavens and the stars. Continuing on our theme of God's great majesty, David here draws our attention to the sky. Let's look at verse 3. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. You can imagine David maybe laying in a clear Middle East field, at night, gazing upward. He didn't have light pollution as we know it today. He would have rightly have seen the full might of the stars of the Milky Way shining back at him. Verse 3 serves as a restating of the first verse, but with a slight tweak. You see, David is again attempting to draw out in us an awe of God through his majestic work 
in creation. What David would likely not have known when he wrote this is that there are one billion trillion stars in the observable universe. So there's likely more. That's a one with 22 zeros behind it. That's remarkable. That's, that's staggering. Our, our rational mind cannot wrap our minds around that big of a number. All of those stars, planets, atmospheres, all of these things are under God's control. It's breathtaking. If we were to travel to the closest star, not the sun, it would take us 81,000 years to get there with current technology. That's insane. Do you guys remember the Civil War? Were any of you alive then? That was only 155 years ago. Think about that. We can't fathom this. Yet we can fathom that God designed it, spoke it into existence, and he upholds it. Our God does this all while providentially working in and through our current world in which we live. It's really these points of magnitude that the prophet here is trying to convey to us. We are small in comparison to the scope and immensity of God and his majestic works. And it's this point our psalm takes an important turn So far, we've seen God's majesty in creation, his majesty magnified in weakness, and we've seen his majesty in the heavens and the stars. But let's look at God's majesty through man and his dominion. For this, we're going to read verses 4 through 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas." It's widely understood that a good portion of Psalm 8 is meant to draw our attention back to the Genesis creation narrative. So let's look there, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Commentator James Boyce notes that it's interesting that in Psalm 8, it describes man as being a little lower than the heavenly beings. Psalm 8 is regarded as showing us God's majesty in making man in his image to exercise dominion over the earth and its animals. You see, we are, or we were intended to be mediators, mediatory beings. We were commanded to cultivate the creation for God's glory. So, why is it that we're made just a little lower than the angels. Boyce says, it is humanity's special privilege and duty to look upward to the angels and beyond the angels to God in whose image women and men have been made rather than downward to the beasts. The result is that they become increasingly like God rather than increasingly beast-like in their behavior. Here in verse five, it's interesting to note that the original Hebrew used, uses the word Elohim. So verse 5 says, 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. So the word heavenly beings there is translated as Elohim. Remember that Elohim can be used to refer to God, or little g-gods, or spirits, or even angels. And in this case, the writer of Hebrews, who will study that passage in a little bit, he interprets this passage to be angels. However, it's interesting to note that the parallel passage in Genesis 1.26 that we just read uses the word Elohim. Genesis 1.26 literally means, Then God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, in reading some of these commentaries, there's some disagreement between scholars and, and commentators over whether or not it should be translated as heavenly beings or God. But we don't need to get caught up in the weeds, so to speak, because we're all made lower than God and the angels. So the context of Genesis 1.26 definitely brings our attention to the reality that we are made in the image of God. In his image, we are given dominion over the creation. Psalm 8, 6 through 8. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. So David, he's clearly drawing out the magnitude of responsibility that God has given humanity. We're given a dominion mandate. We're to steward this world to the glory of God. Man was intended to be in a position of of glory and stature on the earth. But as we all know, that through Adam's sin, we're all fallen. We were intended to look upward toward God, but instead we looked down to the realm of the beasts. Romans 1.25 says, Mankind exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What a sad state we are in as image bearers of God. Adam had blessing, he had glory, but he threw it all away. And in Adam, we all throw it away. We do it every day, sometimes moment by moment. We pursue these idols of the heart. We continually prove our unworthiness before a holy God. Psalm 8, the very beginning, it's interesting. David appears to be at a loss of words here. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? You see, I can imagine him pondering this very question. Why would you, God, consider me? Of what significance am I? It's a good question. Why would God be mindful of us? Why would he care for us? You know, I know that in this room there exists horrendous sin that either you've committed or sin that's been committed against you. We are a cursed people. We're hateful. We despise those who we should love. We murder. We scoff. We betray. As a point of proof, more than 12 million Jews, I'm sorry, people were murdered and killed in World War II, half of which were Jews. The the transatlantic slave trade ripped 12.5 million African image bearers of God away from their home and brought to America to be brutalized and forced into labor. Let's not be so prideful to think that all of that's in the past. 61 million children have been butchered by abortion in America since 1973. That murder continues today, 
every day. You see, enemies of God ignorantly and blindly claim that a mere wall of the mother's flesh is what decides if a fetus is a living human being or just a clump of cells to be ripped apart and discarded in the trash. Each image bearer of God thrown away. And as I read this yesterday and this morning, as you all know, we have mass shootings, what seems like every day. This world is insane. We're surrounded by debauched art in film and music, music that boasts of licentiousness, greed, hedonism. We consume movies and shows that are drowning in wickedness, pornography, devoid of any sort of redemptive value. Pride rules this world. Greed is king. And I would put before you at this point in history, we've all become fairly desensitized to it. Who didn't wake up this morning and go, really? Again? It's enough to just sort of sigh, throw up our hands and say, what else is new? And so, given that frame of mind, ask the question that David asked, what is man that you, God, are mindful of him? When was the last time you spoke with President Donald Trump? What about Jeff Bezos? He's the CEO of Amazon, the, the richest man in the world, I think, right now. Or what about Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama? All of these individuals are listed as having incredible influence in our world, and I think that's probably accurate. When was the last time you gave him a call? Had him over for coffee. You see, you haven't. You haven't because they're on an entirely different level of living, so to speak. You see, they have a multitude of people around them to cater to their every need and to assist them with their business empires. They have strict security, and they're protected 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. You can't call these people. They call you. What's the point? What am I getting at? This might sound harsh, but on a relational level, you're, you're nothing to them. You don't have a personal relationship with them. You don't really matter to them. And, and shouldn't we think the same about God? Wouldn't God, who's, who's capable of infinitely more than all of humanity for eternity, simply just not care? Why would he care if you're upset? Why would he care if you're suffering? Why would he rejoice over you at all? Church, I'm asking you, set aside your theological assumptions for a minute. Everything you've learned, turn it off. It would seem bizarre that God, the omniscient, the omnipotent, omnipresent God, divine ruler of the universe, cares about you or me. And even if he did care, given the list of atrocities that I just put before you, wouldn't he just wipe us all out? Yet, that is not what David meant when he wrote this. What is man that you're mindful of him? And that brings us to our next point, God's majesty through Christ's humility. You see, what, what David was saying here, it was a worshipful statement. He was saying, how is it that you love us in spite of our sin? In spite of how insignificant we are in regards to your creation, how is it that you love us in spite of our utter failure to exercise dominion over this earth? You see, God does care. He's not too busy. 
to stoop down to your level. He's not too powerful to care for someone as weak as you. You may have noticed earlier that I didn't look at the second half of Psalm 8, verse 4. That was by design. What is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Who's the son of man here? You see, in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the son of man more than any other title. So that means something. This phrase likely originates from Daniel, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's really a remarkable passage. I'm going to read it. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Daniel 7 is prophetically declaring an exalted figure who is more than just a mere man. You see, son of man really just means human being. But those who would have heard Jesus refer to himself as son of man over and over and over again, they would have known that he was pulling from the exalted language in Daniel 7 of the exalted man, the son of man. And we also know that Psalm 8 isn't just a standard psalm. It's a messianic psalm because the writer of Hebrews declares it to be so. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2. It's another pretty remarkable passage that's very relevant to what we're studying. Hebrews 2, 5 through 11. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking, It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect, through suffering, for he who sanctifies and those who are in I'm sorry, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. So the Son of Man, Jesus, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. And it's an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and a kingdom that shall not be destroyed. The Hebrew passage clearly reiterates this dominion by stating that God made him a little lower than the angels, which is to imply that Jesus is not less than the angels. Rather, this refers to his stature as the humiliated incarnate God-man. Philippians 2.7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do you see his humility there? If we look back at Psalm 8.2, remember I said this was the key to this entire psalm. It says, Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy 
and the avenger. So do you see it? Are you starting to see it? God establishes his kingdom by working through the weak. Who are the weak? Well, we are. You and I. And we're especially weak in our sin. And who else is of the weak? Christ. He was brought low as a man. The sovereign God humiliated in flesh. And though he was without sin, he was a servant. And in his humiliation and in his death, he was of the weak. And who are God's enemies? It's those who deny him, the proud, those who boast of worldly wisdom, the hard-hearted. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And this is really the point. God is mindful of man through the person and work of Jesus Christ. God is mindful of man through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Flip back to Hebrews. Eight and nine. Now I'm putting everything in subjection to him. He, Jesus, left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. When we look at this psalm, we see man's failed attempt at dominion, failed attempt at being a representative of God. We're boastful, arrogant people, but God shows his love for us, his people, his elect, by sending his son, Jesus, to the earth to take on flesh, to live a perfect, sinless life and be the true man that we were intended to be. See, Jesus Christ is our true mediator because he is God incarnate. God works in and through our weaknesses, and he does so primarily by bringing shameful and guilt ridden sinners to himself through the sacrifice of his very own son, Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Yahweh, Elohim, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, David finally draws our attention again to worship. By repeating the first verse of this psalm, you see, God is our our covenant God, and he's established the better eternal new covenant with a people from all nations. His name is Majestic precisely because his grace and mercy in that he would save wretched sinners like you and I. The psalm shows us a peculiar majesty, a majesty of humility. In our lives, brothers and sisters, I want for you to pull from this a hopeful brokenness. When you're hurting from the effects of sin, remember Christ, who by God's sovereign decree brought him to earth to be a propitiatory sacrifice for us. Where you have failed, he has not. When you're feeling like you can't do what God is asking you, remember that God is exalting his power through your weakness. Paul says this well in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 7-10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, 
to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But you said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. There it is. It's the majesty of humility. So often I've been put in situations where I've cried out to God and said, why? Why have you chosen me for this? Why have you given me this suffering? Why have you called me (laughs) through the conviction of the Holy Spirit to talk to that person? Surely you can relate. And I know that in that moment, he will give me the strength I need when I'm in the midst of those tasks. But I can't help but express the, the momentary anxiety and fear that I feel leading up to those moments. It's real. I'm weak. And in that weakness, the majesty of God becomes clear to me again and again and again. And when I take those faithful steps of obedience, I see him empowered. You see, God calls us to follow him, and he's well aware that you can't. You cannot do it in your flesh. What did your flesh ever profit you? How has it helped you? Hasn't helped you one bit. You see, the flesh made us look to and worship the creation rather than the creator. That's all it does. We walk as people who have had our hearts of stone shattered as Christians. And now, with these new hearts, we live lives of submission to King Jesus. So friends, remember that at the core of our Christian faith is a need to be humble. We may be humiliated by the world. We may be laughed at, spit at, derided as foolish. And that might happen more and more. Who's to say? But in this humiliation, God will magnify his majesty through your weakness, through your suffering. You see, we're not called to take up arms. We're called to surrender, not to God's enemies, but to Christ, our humble servant king. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, I just plead with you, see your sin. Stop fooling yourself into thinking that you're not as bad as the next person. You see, the creator God of this universe has sent his son to earth to save precisely people like you. Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick If you deny him, you are sick, terminally ill. The greatest command in all of Scripture is from God to his people that they would rejoice in him. That's the number one imperative. I beg you, repent, turn from your sin, see that it's sin, agree with God that it's sin. And put your full trust into Christ so that you might know that imperative command to enjoy him forever. In church, through our forefather Adam, we learned to sin. We've looked away from God. We've looked down to the world of the creation, the beasts, the things that pull our attention away from God, whatever that is. We've taken our eyes off the Creator. But now, because of Christ, we're able to look back toward God and gaze upon His majesty. We get God. 
close. I want to read 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. O God, our God, O Yahweh, our Elohim, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Pray with me. Father, we stand before you as weak people, as broken people. My prayer for those in this place this morning that may be struggling is not that they would give up. It's that they would surrender to you that they would see that you are doing a work in and through their weakness that is breathtaking. Lord, you have prepared for us in the heavenly places many beautiful realities. And we are thankful for your grace, so thankful for Jesus. Father, we love you. And it's in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.